You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. My name is Gauri Pillai and I'm managing editor of the Oxford Human Rights Hub blog. In today's episode, we talk to Professor Julie Souk, professor of law at Fordham University, about the United States Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson. On 24th of June 2022, the United States Supreme Court in Dobbs overruled half a century of jurisprudence on women's right to reproductive freedom in the United States. Today, as we grapple with the far-reaching, terrible consequences of Dobbs, in this episode, we focus specifically on the equality argument for a right to abortion, a claim that barely received any attention in Dobbs. The equality claim becomes all the more significant in light of the proposed Equal Rights Amendment or the ERA in the United States. Julie's 2020 book, We, the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, is the first and only book to chronicle and assess the 21st century revival of the ERA, culminating in Virginia's ratification in 2020. We explore with Julie whether the ERA offers us a ray of hope in the post-Dobbs world. Thank you, Julie, for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Gowry. I'm really glad that we found this time to have an urgent conversation. Let's maybe start by discussing what came, what really came before Dobbs in the United States. So could you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of what existed pre-Dobbs? So both in terms of constitutional law and specifically, of course, the right to abortion in the United States. Sure. Well, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, As we all know, Dobbs overruled a nearly 50-year-old precedent in the United States, the case of Roe v. Wade, decided in 1973. The Supreme Court decision invalidated a Texas law that had banned and criminalized abortion in most circumstances. In Roe v. Wade, the court concluded that the U.S. Constitution protected a pregnant woman's right to terminate a pregnancy without governmental interference as part of every individual's constitutional right to privacy. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. There are many intervening decisions, uh, but it's important to note that uh, what is being overruled in Dobbs is not only Roe versus Wade, uh, but a framework uh, that revised uh, and upheld Roe in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a 1992 decision. So in the Casey case, Uh, Instead of saying uh, that all state involvement in the first trimester was unconstitutional, Casey permitted the state to attempt to persuade the pregnant woman to continue the pregnancy in recognition of the state's interest in protecting unborn life. That is, prior to Casey, Roe really, the easy rule that Roe had created to follow was that there really no state intervention was permitted in the first trimester uh, and uh, really, none was permitted uh, prior to viability either, except uh, really to uh, protect the health of the pregnant person. Uh, but this decision allows some interventions uh, as long as they don't create an undue burden on the pregnant person's ability to choose. Uh, and there, uh, we had a joint opinion 
uh, by three of the centrist uh, justices, if you will, on the court at the time, uh, which established the undue burden standard. Uh, that is, um, it permitted some regulation of abortion, uh, even in these early trimesters, as long as it didn't create an undue burden on the woman's choice uh, to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, and all of this has, of course, been wiped clean uh, by the Dobbs decision. The Dobbs decision is very intentional and explicit in saying uh, that it's overruling Roe and Casey uh, and uh, therefore, uh, as they put it, returning uh, the question of abortion law uh, to uh, democratically elected representatives, i.e. state legislatures, uh, rather than the courts. That's really helpful, start, Julie. Um, and now that we've sort of understood briefly what Roan Casey did. My next question is about what really led up to Dobbs, both legally and very briefly politically. Well, one thing I will say is that in 1973, when Roe versus Wade was decided, the right to life movement, the anti-abortion movement in the United States uh, was really uh, non-existent uh, compared to what it is today. Uh, but it really mobilized the anti-abortion uh, people after uh, the Supreme Court uh, recognized a pretty broad right to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, so for decades, states have been passing laws restricting abortion uh, in the hopes to create an opportunity for courts to first push Roe to its limits uh, and then eventually overrule it. And I think those efforts have been extremely successful. Uh, and that's what happened with the Mississippi statute as well. The Mississippi statute is an example of one of these statutes that was deliberately written uh, to test uh, how far courts were willing to go uh, in keeping Roe alive. So the Mississippi law is a state law that bans abortion at 15 weeks of gestation. And at 15 weeks, it would conflict with Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade really prohibits uh, these types of bans uh, before the viability line. Uh, and so that law uh, was passed. Uh, and then, interestingly, uh, in 2019, you saw many states, we saw many states that went even further than the Mississippi 15-week ban uh, by passing so-called fetal heartbeat bans. Uh, so all of these laws say as soon as a fetal heartbeat can be detected, uh, and it requires all doc doctors to check for a fetal heartbeat uh, in the event of a requested pregnancy termination. Uh, and as soon as that fetal heartbeat can be uh, detected, the uh, abortion is prohibited. Uh, and uh, the fetal heartbeat can typically, some kind of cardiac activity uh, can typically uh, be detected within six weeks of the woman's last uh, menstrual period uh, which is often even before the woman realizes that she is pregnant. So this legislative activity within state legislatures, uh, especially intensified in recent years because the composition of the Supreme Court changed. Uh, that is, they were just counting who on the Supreme Court, based on their earlier opinions or anything they've said in public, including during their confirmation hearings, uh, they were really charting who, which justices uh, were perceived to be open to overruling Roe v. Wade, uh, or at least chipping away at several of its elements one at a time. It does sound like 
there's been a sort of step-by-step legal and political movement to really dismantle Roe. And of course, they've been successful in Dobbs. So Dobbs seems to do two related things. One is to refuse to find a constitutionally protected right to abortion and then in turn, therefore, overrule Roe and Casey. So my next question is, why did, very briefly, why did the majority in Dobbs do this? I think it's clear that the reasoning of the majority is really premised on their version of American legal history and constitutional history. And there is one aspect of it that I think we need to discuss, which is the substantive due process doctrine under the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War in 1868, and it has many provisions, uh, but the the one at issue uh, in this case and in Roe is the guarantee that the state can't deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, This was important after the abolition of slavery and the establishment of the formerly enslaved persons uh, as equal citizens under the law. So the terms in that provision, liberty and without due process of law, uh, has stood for the proposition that some liberties are so fundamental that the state can never take it away. So the problem, of course, with this framing of the 14th Amendment due process right was that early interpretations in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, including most notoriously the Lochner versus New York decision, really empowered judges to be very selective in protecting the liberties that they held most dear. So ever since Lochner, uh, there has been this criticism that substantive due process uh, empowers judges to become policymakers. Uh, And I tell this story because I think it's very important to what the uh, Dobbs majority is trying to do, that it sees itself as proposing to limit substantive due process rights uh, to those that they claim are grounded in history and tradition. Uh, They want to say the rights that are grounded in history and tradition are the only ones they're going to protect uh, using the 14th Amendment. And that methodology is itself a policy choice. That is, there are many ways of determining which rights are fundamental. But if you insist on uh, looking in an originalist fashion at which rights were established uh, in 1868 when the 14th Amendment uh, went into effect, or in the 18th century when the Constitution was adopted, or uh, tracing the Constitution's history and tradition to literally the 13th century, which is what the Supreme Court majority does in this decision, it is making the choice to uh, enforce a conception of rights, fundamental rights, a conception that is made uh, during a time when the exclusion of women and black people and even poor people from the equal enjoyment of rights was assumed by the legal order. Now I'd like to go back to something I started with, the right to equality, which is a right, as I mentioned, which barely received any attention in Dobbs. So at the outset, my question to you is, what is the equality law argument against restricting abortion? The 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which was adopted after the Civil War, in addition to prohibiting the deprivation of life, liberty, and property without due process, also guarantees 
equal protection of the laws. It says that the state cannot deprive any person of equal protection of the laws. And for about the first hundred years of the 14th Amendment being in effect in the United States, it was not interpreted to include uh, the equal protection of the laws uh, for women. But this all changed about contemporaneous uh, with Roe versus Wade, largely due to the advocacy of uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was an advocate. Uh, many cases in the 1970s persuaded the Supreme Court to scrutinize laws that discriminated against women on the grounds that they violated the equal protection of the laws. So we got a very rich jurisprudence that developed in the 1970s uh, that essentially held that laws that discriminated against women or es essentially excluded them from the full status as equal citizens uh, were unconstitutional. And so if you apply that to abortion, and certainly uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, as a scholar made these arguments, and then those arguments were uh, developed more robustly in the amicus brief by legal scholars, Reva Siegel, Melissa Murray, and Serena Myrie uh, submitted with this uh, Dobbs proceeding. Uh, the argument was that laws that banned abortion or severely restricted abortion uh, made it impossible for women to live as fully equal persons and citizens uh, in American society and therefore should be scrutinized and struck down under the Equal Protection Clause. And the argument that has been made in the scholar's brief about the equality argument against abortion bans uh, holds that policies that are premised on stereotypes about women's traditional or proper role in the family or in society, or based on assumptions just about uh, the way women and men are, uh, are unconstitutional. And if you apply that to abortion restrictions or abortion bans, uh, Laws that ban abortion are based on the assumption that women are destined to be mothers uh, and that all women are uh, interested in being mothers and are willing to be mothers regardless of the sacrifices and burdens uh, that that would entail. And, uh, and so understood in this way, uh, the uh, abortion restriction is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. It is a discrimination against women. So I think those are the sets of arguments. They're not entirely the same, uh, whether you go the formal uh, route uh, by looking at it as a form of unequal uh, treatment uh, based on sex uh, versus a form of subordination and um, stereotyping based on sex. Uh, these are all ways of saying that banning an abortion is uh, some kind of harm to one sex uh, as opposed to the other and therefore uh, has no place in our constitutional system. So my next question is really about how the Dobbs court responded to this claim from equality, both the majority and the dissent. What did they really say and how did they respond to the equality argument? So the problem with the equality argument in the United States is that even though it is a very compelling argument, uh, it's, it would need some work in relation to the precedents that have been developed by the U.S. Supreme Court on equal protection, specifically after Roe versus Wade was decided, the Supreme Court decided some equal protection cases that held that only intentional forms of discrimination and unequal treatment would trigger heightened scrutiny of governmental action, which is to say that governmental policies that simply had a disparate impact or what you would call indirect discrimination uh, in the UK or in the European context 
uh, that those policies did not pose a constitutional violation or even a constitutional problem giving rise to uh, heightened scrutiny. So even if a 15-week abortion ban has a disparate impact on women and has a disparate impact on women's ability to live freely as equal citizens, that is currently not an analysis that is done under the equal protection precedent that exists. So my next question is really about how the ERA fits amongst all of this. So more specifically, what has the history of the ERA been? And broadly, what does it propose to do? And then we can, after we discuss this, we can move on to how the ERA applies to the right to an abortion specifically. The Equal Rights Amendment is a proposal to add a provision to the U.S. Constitution that would explicitly guarantee equal rights without abridgment by government at the federal or state level on account of sex. Uh, Even though the amendment was introduced in 1923, it wasn't adopted by Congress. And it's important to note here that the U.S. Constitution has a unique and very difficult rule with regard to amendments. Uh, An amendment cannot be added to the U.S. Constitution uh, without two-thirds of both houses of Congress, followed by ratification by three-fourths of the states. So with 50 states, uh, that means 38 state ratifications. And what happened with the Equal Rights Amendment was that even though it was introduced in 1923, it was not adopted by both houses of Congress until 1972. Uh, Then it went to state ratification and a pretty healthy supermajority of the states ratified the amendment quite quickly. We got 35 out of 50 uh, ratifications uh, by 1977. But under the rule, we need three-fourths of the states, so that's 38. And the three additional states did not come in uh, by the time of the deadline. Uh, Congress had put a deadline uh, on the states uh, for ratification of the amendment. Uh, And foreseeing this problem, Congress actually extended the deadline once uh, to 1982. So there were three additional years, but the three states did not ratify uh, by 1982 either. And throughout the 70s, because of many culture wars about the meaning of gender equality, including its relationship to abortion, five states actually attempted, took action to rescind uh, their ratifications. And then, uh, very interestingly, most people thought the ERA was dead after 1982. But in 2017, Nevada revived the process by delivering a state ratification. And then Illinois followed in 2018 and Virginia followed in 2020. So that brings the count up to 38 states. And it's raised a bunch of constitutional questions about whether or not super late ratifications are valid, uh, whether or not Congress can put deadlines on the ratification of constitutional amendments, whether or not Congress can change deadlines decades after uh, the original deadline passed, Uh, There are questions about whether or not states that try to rescind their ratifications, uh, whether those states should be counted as ratified states or not. Uh, And most importantly, uh, a central question is who decides uh, all of the uh, questions that I've just listed? Is it judges or is it a political decision uh, for Congress to make? So, uh, So those are the issues around the ERA. Uh, And uh, I should say, though, that on the one hand, uh, the ERA clearly intended to invalidate policies that compromised 
or undermined the equal citizenship status of women or the ability to, of women to live as equal citizens uh, in society. But at the same time, the legislative history of the ERA from the 1970s does not really have much of a discussion of abortion. Uh, and we have to understand that in light of the amendment rule. To get two thirds of both houses of Congress, you need very strong bipartisan support. You need support across uh, a range of ideologies. And in the 1970s, there was not a consensus in Congress amongst the supporters of women's rights as to what that meant for abortion and the right to abortion. So I think there was an avoidance of the topic amongst the framers of the 1970s ERA. So it's an open question as to whether or not adopting the ERA that was introduced uh, 50 years ago uh, would clearly and robustly protect an abortion right. So in a recent article, you argue for, for new legal paths to expand access to safe and free abortions, which move beyond Roe's reasoning of the private zone of unwanted pregnancy. And through this, you very compellingly imagine the constitutional parts of reproductive justice in a world without Roe. So what are these new parts? And um, is the ERA potentially one of them? My article really focuses on things other than the ERA. Uh, specifically, I look at the compromises reached in other constitutional democracies outside the United States. Our compromise uh, has been uh, a not very satisfying one, which is Roe versus Wade, a broad negative right to abortion, which has now been overruled, uh, combined with a zero positive rights uh, to abortion, even under circumstances when uh, it is medically necessary. For, uh, to save the woman's physical or mental health. So uh, the more common um, method of protecting abortion access is by uh, allowing abortions really up until the end of the first trimester, around 13 weeks, 12 or 13 weeks, and then allowing them uh, between 13 weeks and the viability line for indicated reasons. The advantage of this compromise uh, by which you have an indications framework is that in most of the countries that employ this framework, a permitted abortion under the law also leads to public funding for that abortion. Uh, whereas our compromise is it's none of the state's business, including the state doesn't fund it, even if you really need one because of your social and economic situation uh, or because of a health indication. So I think one is that uh, perhaps to the extent that it's, there's possibility for legislating reproductive justice, perhaps a compromise more similar to what you see in Europe uh, should be contemplated. So that's number one. Uh, what kind of legislative compromise should we be contemplating uh, in this post-Roe world? Uh, number two has to do with different litigation strategies that move beyond both privacy and equality. I've argued in the paper that uh, the real problem with banning abortion is that it forces women into public service, basically. Uh, when women birth and rear children, uh, they are not just engaging in a private vanity act. Uh, they are actually producing a person who becomes a worker and a citizen and a productive member of society. And for a long time, women have been expected to perform that labor uh, without any kind of compensation. 
And sometimes women are expected to perform that later labor at great sacrifice uh, to themselves uh, in a way that's life altering and sometimes life threatening if you look at the high rates of maternal mortality. Uh, the state is basically renting the woman's womb for free uh, without just compensation. Uh, and I think if we were to bring litigation in the future that developed this theory, uh, it would force the state to compensate unwanted pregnancy. And I think that states forced to compensate unwanted pregnancy, that is to fully absorb the costs of banning abortion, I think the states would quickly reconsider uh, whether they really wanted to ban abortion at that point. Thank you, Julie. I think that's actually a wonderful point to leave the conversation at, as you've pointed us towards several new ways to actually think about the right to an abortion. And as someone who works in reproductive rights and justice, it was just incredibly rich for me to just listen to you. And I learned a lot. And I just want to really thank you for your time and for talking with us today. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Megan Campbell. This episode was produced by Gauri Pillay, edited by Christy Calloway-Gale, and hosted by Gauri Pillay. Music for the series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.